Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. This United States Army combat veteran is on a mission to help end the social stigma of mental health illnesses. She's been through some trials and tribulations of her own. She runs an organization called, actually a blog called, called Cruise Corner. I think you're going to enjoy her story, and hopefully you can help her out on her important mission. And thank you for listening to another episode. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Our veteran guest for this episode is straight out of combat radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero, is Army veteran Lonnie Hankins. Lonnie is on a mission these days to help people in many, many ways uh, through their mental health issues uh, with her blog, uh, you know, Cruise Corner. But, you know, Lonnie is uh, Lonnie's a very special person. She's still on mission after her time in the service. And, you know, I applaud her and many do for that. She grew up on the central coast of California and was the youngest of two kids. Her father, who made it back from Vietnam, worked for a company that specialized in metal coil and paper roll restoration, and her mom worked in human resources. Prior to joining the Army, she enrolled in the fine arts program at her local community college, and shortly after completing her AA degree, she was sent to Fort Jackson, South Carolina for basic combat training. I actually went to Fort Jackson myself. Then she went to Fort Lee, Virginia for her AIT, and she trained as an automated logistical specialist, which is a 92 Alpha. That's the MOS. She was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas, which I think that's where she's at now, close by, and where she worked as a supply and dispatch clerk for the 1st Squadron, 4th Cav Regiment, 4th Brigade Combat Team. During her time in the 1-4 CAF, she was a member of the female engagement team, the FET, for those of you who know that, and completed one combat deployment to the Paktika province of Afghanistan. In February of 2015, she transitioned to the Army Reserves, where she continued to serve as a 92 Alpha in Cape Coral, Florida. After serving in the United States Army for six years, she continued her education with the post-9-11 GI Bill. Well, she actually left the Army after six years, but we want to hear more about that, the transition period. While she worked on her master's degree, she was given the opportunity to address veteran suicide and communication problems at the Department of Veteran Affairs. Her capstone project there inspired her to start a blog where she could continue to bring awareness to veteran suicide and veteran health care issues. And I mentioned uh, the Cruise Corner blog. We're going to hear a lot about that. Uh, she shares personal stories on that blog about her life in the Army and the transition that many of us have gone through from soldier to civilian and the struggles that many of us have had with mental health. Her mission, and it's a good mission, uh, is unbelievable. She wants to encourage other veterans to reach out and share their own stories to take action against veteran suicide and end the stigma attached to mental illness. That is one heck of a mission, and uh, I'm just so honored and humbled to have you here, Lonnie. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. 
Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So tell us about growing up on the central coast of California. Yeah, so kind of like any California kid, I grew up at the beach pretty much. I didn't really have, I guess, a lot of goals, really. It was just kind of uh, going surfing, and I had the idea that I thought I would be an artist one day, and so I kind of, I was in and out of school over the years because I started taking college classes when I was probably 16 or 17 while I was still in high school, and I burned out for a little bit, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, so... I guess I just kind of tinkered around at the beach a lot and eventually I kind of got to that point where I was 22 and I didn't really know what else to do and I really wanted to get out of my hometown. Orchid is a very small place. It's not, there's not a whole lot there and a lot of my friends were graduating with bachelor degrees and I kind of felt like, well, I don't really know what I want to do. I need to do something. And that's how I kind of ended up at the recruiter's office because I had a buddy that had just gone to the army and he was telling me about it's a great nine to five, which I later found out it definitely is not. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, yeah, the great hype. <laughs> you know, I hear you. And, so. Uh, yeah, so he kind of sold me before the recruiter had to. And But it was kind of that idea of I was really lost in my life. It was like, I don't really know what I'm going to do. I'm 22. I don't know, not just a job, but how am I going to take care of myself? And I just really wanted a purpose. And my dad had served in Vietnam. I had grandparents that had been in World War II. I had an aunt that had even been in World War II as a part of the Women's Army Corps. She was a pilot. And uh, so there was this kind of this history there. And I thought, you know, I'd like to kind of get in on that my brother had nothing to do with the military he was the one that grew up playing military in the backyard with my dad's equipment but uh, I ended up being the one to kind of shoot for it and go and so the recruiter told me you know you can get health care you can get school benefits you can do all these things and so really uh if I was to be honest I really wanted a new car and my car was falling apart I had a little uh, Honda that I used to use to get to the beach and I just wanted to be able to switch it in and so I figured you know what I'll go to the army for a few years and see what I can get out of that and kind of build my life from that and uh, it ended up just becoming a really big part of my life which is why I wanted to continue to do stuff for veterans and service members once I got out it gave me everything I have today so uh, I really appreciate the time that I got to spend in the service well you know you, you mentioned your dad we both mentioned your dad being in Vietnam how you know how did that impact you obviously he served the country so you looked up to him for that but but did you did you notice anything about him was there anything about his experience in Vietnam that he may have imparted to you? Well, my dad, he had been drafted and he was very quiet over the years about his service. I didn't really understand that my dad had served until I was probably in my late teens. There was that I there were pictures up around the house. I saw that he was in uniform, but it wasn't spoken of. And then over the years, he would sort of kind of joke about the stuff they did. And he didn't really talk about what happened in Vietnam. But he talked about the camaraderie he had with people and just the fun times he had. And so I thought, like, I was kind of the loner in school. And so I was always more consumed by the books and doing stuff. And I didn't really have a group of people around me. So that idea of, like, having that company was really appealing to me that – uh, there was this place you could go and everybody was just kind of like this family that was outside of blood links. It was just uh, really appealing in that sense. But I didn't understand because of his quietness, really the 
the effects of war. I didn't realize what it could do to you. I didn't understand things like PTSD. I didn't have any background in knowing how you changed from your service. I just heard the times that he was out joking with friends at like the motor pool or something like that. So it sounded appealing. But then later on, I had to learn for myself that uh, there's kind of that dark side to the military, that it's not all fun and games all day, every day. So let me ask you, uh, let me ask you this. Um, you went to Fort Jackson. Uh, what's that? Columbia, South Carolina. Did, uh, what was that like? You know, tell, tell us what that experience was like for you. And was there any one thing that happened in your basic training or AIT that sticks out in your mind? Any, or maybe two things. I don't know. Maybe more. Why don't just going from California to South Carolina, if you've never had humidity in your life, that is <laughs> true. That is a, it was just uh, learning to just push through your environment because I just was not acclimated to that. So it was really tough to get used to just the thick air. But uh, like I said, I was kind of a loner growing up. So it was really quick getting into that whole, you depend on your team, your de- team depends on you. And so I was used to doing things alone a lot. So I had to really quick, learn how to allow other people to help me and to I was always willing to help other people but I was really independent I didn't like people helping me and I realized this is where I have to allow people to do it because you can't do it by yourself it's not just the one person team anymore and so one of the things that always stuck out to me was I got injured really quick in basic training and I was really scared of getting recycled and I didn't want to be a holdover And uh, I learned really quick to depend on my friends and my buddies because they would wrap my feet or they would uh, really take care of you to make sure you went through. And I wasn't used to that in my life, how quickly people just considered you kind of a part of themselves, that they would look out for you. And I had that all the way to AIT that just the buddy system was what really stood out to me then and what I really miss probably most about the military and what I remember the most is just how much people come together over big and little things. You know, I'm glad you pointed that out because that is one thing that that's really hard to describe. I guess if you played team sports, you might understand that. But, you know, the Army and the Navy and the Marines, and the, it's not a team sport. It's like you mentioned, Lonnie, that it's, it's serious business and and you're right. You know, if if you, you you have to be able to count on your buddies uh, in order to get through it, many many times. Um, I can remember after a couple of weeks, I was like, "Do I really even want to be here?" I mean, you know, you kind of wonder, especially when the when the drill sergeants are screaming and yelling constantly. Yeah, yeah I definitely had that moment of I can't believe I put myself here. Like this was a decision that I made. I asked for this when we we're getting screamed at, and they got you lined up looking for your barracks first day. And uh, there was definitely a time where I thought, man, I don't know if this is really what I wanted, <laughs> but you get well, past it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't really have time to think. I think you don't have time to think. But but I can remember uh, they still use the cattle cars. You know, I was back in the 80s. But remember when jamming you into those cattle cars and then taking you to that first barracks? Did you guys get that experience? We basically, they had these old like school buses that they cram you into and you put your head down and you can't look up. You don't know where you're going and they just take you somewhere and drop you off and kick you out. And it's just like, go, go, go. Like there's no time to really process what's happening. You're getting screamed at a lot and you're just with a bunch of people you've never met, but you immediately depend on them to get through it. When you graduated, did, did anybody from your family come to see you? 
when I graduated at Fort Jackson, my both of my mom and my dad were able to come out and see us do that whole, what, what whole ceremony. Was, what was that like for you guys? Uh, for me, it was really emotional that I made it through. And uh, I was happy to see both of my parents, but I was really happy that my dad got to see me get through that because I felt like it was a really big thing to prove that I was going that army route also, that I was surviving the first step of it. And uh, it was probably the first time in my life where I felt really proud of something I did. And of course you can't, can't cry in front of your buddies, but it was really an emotional time to just kind of hold that in and uh, just realize what you were a part of, just hear that you're a part of the U S army. It's just a big moment in my life. And I was really glad my parents were able to witness it. Well, that's really cool. You know, and you know, we hear a lot about the flag these days. And I think that, you know, when, when a veteran, most veterans that I know, when they see the flag, it it really has, there's a real special meaning to it. You know, what does that, what does the flag mean to you when you see it? To me, it's just that the flag just represents not just what we were there representing, what we were fighting for, but, you know, when you're especially not even just for combat veterans, but anyone that is closely affiliated with the military, you see people laid to rest beneath that flag. And it really has that emotional side to it. You know, that the people you lose over there, that that's their last spot is underneath that flag. And so you feel like uh, for me, it's not just about representing this country. It's about not forgetting those that paid the ultimate sacrifice for us to have freedom and just to live in the country that we have. Yeah, that's well said. So so you made it through basic. Mom and dad show up. It's awesome for you. You're feeling really good. And you think, now I can step out. And then you get to AIT. And then it's really, yeah, it starts over, it, yeah. it's more the same, right? So just when you think you made it to the finish line. But uh, so you were at Fort Lee, Virginia uh, before mm-hmm. your deployment. What was it like at Fort Lee? I thought I was used to the humidity in South Carolina. It just gets better when you move up north. <laughs> but, <laughs> no doubt. Uh, you know, I was still there when they were using instructors. Drill sergeants hadn't come back yet. So it was a little bit more relaxed, uh, a little bit more freedom. And it was still, I kind of miss basic because basic because it was harder. You required more of that buddy team, more depending on each other. AIT kind of got back into that individual training a little bit. You didn't fully depend on people. It was a lot of paperwork and uh, test taking and stuff like that. So it was more of feeling like I was back in college. And so uh, I think the real excitement started once I finally got out of there and was finally able to go to that first duty station and start putting my job to work and getting back into that field training and stuff like that. So that was at Fort Riley? You went to, from Fort Lee to Fort Riley? Yeah, Fort Riley was the only stateside uh, duty station I ever had. Tell us about so, that MOS. What was that MOS 92 Alpha? Yeah, the automated logistical specialist. So what is it? What do you do? What what what's that it's job? Just basically, basically your unit supply. Uh, we often get kind of tied in with ninety two Yankees, which is your company supply. They're the ones that hand out your your patches if you need a new flag or your unit patch or something like that. Uh, we're a little bit bigger. Ninety two Alphas deal with your truck parts, weapon parts, just kind of keeping things running. And so I work down in the motor pool. Uh, between, I kind of had a split job. 
that's why I say I'm the supply and dispatch clerk because part of my day is working in the supply cages. You're uh, kind of just doing inventory, making sure you got enough parts just for basic truck maintenance. And then on the other side, you're dispatching those trucks so those drivers can take, basically you're giving them the keys to be able to take their trucks out for either training or just basic maintenance, just testing it on the road. So it's a split job, but it was fairly easy, kind of a comfortable job. You know, people don't give supply credit sometimes, you know, but, you know, without the right parts and parts that are vehicles that don't work, you know, you're pretty much broke. And, you know, yeah. you know, so it's a job that's needed. And I don't know, you know, you say it's easy, maybe when you compare it to something else, but, you know, without it, we can't run. So state side, it's easy. I mean, when you get into overseas and stuff, I mean, you're sometimes sent out to retrieve those parts. Those parts don't just come down to your motor pool magically. Like you have to go figure out what warehouse that part is at and go retrieve it and get it back to the motor pool and get it back to your mechanics. So there's a lot of running around and coming and going and tracking stuff. You're not only retrieving it, but you're the one that's in process those parts coming in. So if you mess up that inventory and you have an entire squadron relying on you for PMCSs and they think you got oil filters and all this stuff and you mess that up, you set however many trucks back you can destroy a mission really quick. And so you, there's a lot of responsibility on you and uh, even just dispatches. You have to keep track of what's out, what's deadlined. And so there's a lot of paperwork and a lot of uh, actual footwork to get things done. Yeah. So, yeah. So again, it's more complicated than it sounds, but, but what were you thinking when you got your first, when you got your orders to deploy for Afghanistan, what was that like? Actually, the day I arrived at Fort Riley to in-process, uh, they hadn't even taken me to where my living quarters were going to be. And they're like, oh, you're going to the cavalry. Just so you know, they deploy in about six months. And so I literally just pulled on to Fort Riley, and I found out within the first hour of being there that I was going to Afghanistan. And uh, when I was in basic, there had been a lot of rumors about the war's going to end. This is over. So I thought, okay, I'm never going to see that. That's you know, the war is finally going to end. And so it was kind of a shock hearing that it wasn't and I was going to be over there. And so there's definitely uh, your nerves kind of get in the way a little bit. But I had probably six months or so to train with my unit. I got to know people pretty well before I left. So I felt pretty comfortable with who I was leaving with. I trusted a fair enough amount of people to know that my hand or I was going to have my life in hands I trusted. So uh, once we got to Afghanistan, I kind of saw it. Uh, I was able to calm down a little bit. It definitely looked a lot like the Mojave Desert, so I kind of just played off of that. It's just like this looks like Fort Irwin, California a little bit. So there were days I forgot I was even sitting out in Afghanistan. But uh, it definitely – there's those moments where it's just like, wow, I can't believe I'm actually going to the Middle East and actually going to be a part of this. So it's really happening. I remember Fort Irwin at National Training Center. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. But uh, tell us about Afghanistan. What were you doing there? I know you were doing your job, but what what was going on? Uh, well, we were we were out at Fab Sharana in the Paktika province, and then our cab unit was actually spread out over that area. So we had I think it was four or five troops in our squadron, and so 
our main headquarters part was there along with our maintenance area, which was the troop I was a part of. And then the rest were in the cops that kind of surrounded the area. And so what we were basically meant for is just not only taking care of those trucks and the weapons and like the NVG systems and stuff like that, that were on our fob, but we would have to also take care of trucks that came in. Uh, we would have to dispatch trucks for troops that were nowhere near us. So there was a lot of correspondence through just kind of email talk. And uh, I spent a lot of time on guard. I probably did half my deployment sitting in a guard shack out on the perimeter, just waiting <laughs> for anything to happen. And uh, just a lot of uh, retrograde stuff where you're driving around, you're kind of taking those recycled parts from trucks and trying to kind of scrap them out to get money for your brigade to keep new parts and better stuff coming in. And so for the most part, I was doing the same job just on a wider scale and uh, a lot more inventory, a lot more responsibility. And uh, for the most part, just still sitting at a motor pool. Did you uh, did you know what you were fighting for, and and and, and what kept you focused? I think what just kept me focused was the fact that I knew being there and just having that as a job, like definitely uh, get benefits for going over, and it was just like this is make this is going to make my life down the road better. This is building for something better uh, down the road, but it, it was kind of like. The whole fighting for it starts off with the whole like you're real gun ho going out there just like supporting this mission. This is for a country. This is this stuff. And especially because we got there late May. So we were coming up on September 11th. So there was definitely that point where you're you remember where stuff started years ago. And so there was that part of like this is part of a bigger mission. And but over time, I started kind of talking with people back home and kind of hearing how people didn't realize we were still over there a lot of times. And you kind of start to feel like, I don't know why I'm here because it's like, is this the forgotten war? Uh, do people care that we're here? And so it starts off really pumped up. And then over time, it's just like, is this part of something bigger? Am I here for a reason? And like, and the, you get the why question gets a little bit bigger. Why am I here? And so there was definitely that, the push-pull effect of being out in Afghanistan. There's that part of, uh, this is part of my duty. And then the other part was, is this a necessary duty? Is this just a waste of resources and stuff? So especially having my dad part of Vietnam, because you hear the story of like, we yeah. shouldn't be yeah. there. And so you start to wonder, is this going to be the same, same thing, different era? Kind of. So for me, just having that connection back to a Vietnam vet, it was kind of like, I just hope this isn't this isn't that on repeat or something. I hope this is for something bigger. I hope this is here for a reason. You don't want to feel like you're wasting your time. You know, it's interesting that you say that because and I'm glad you did, Lonnie, because even now, you know, there's people out there, men and women in uniform that are in some pretty harrowing places. And, and, and I agree. I think that people tend to forget. Um, a lot of it might be the media and they just don't report it as much, but you know, we take a lot of things for granted at times and, and, you know, we, what do we have a half a million people in our military and a lot of them are deployed still in places around the world, you know, on boats in the Navy or, you know, at a bunker or, you know, can you think of anything that happened in Afghanistan, you know, in addition to wondering if people really knew you were there? 
Can you think of any incident that happened that you go, this is for real, or maybe this isn't good, or this is good? Is there anything that sticks out in your mind about Afghanistan that you, and we can get to the blog, but anything that sticks out? I think what makes war kind of interesting nowadays is your connection to technology. So before, I think, if you weren't necessarily, because like I said, we were spread out, so our brigade was all over the place. And you hear about those other cops that have your guys from your brigade on it. And the difference with technology is and having access to things like Facebook is when someone from your brigade gets killed, it's not just you just hear about it. You see the memorial go up on Facebook on the brigade page. So it becomes very real because you're seeing both sides of it. So you're hearing the real time aspect of it where, you know, something bad happened. And then you have to watch the families mourn on social media, which is which made it really real for me because it was just like you're, I don't think people are used to seeing both sides of it because before it was you saw the war side of it and everyone else back home dealt with it. And you came back after everyone's already dealt with it, but you're still dealing with it with them in real time. And so when we lost our first person from our brigade, that's where it was like, okay, this is real. This is, this isn't NTC anymore. This isn't just a training. Uh, people are dying. Uh, you have very real moments where we did lose someone to suicide out there. And you start realizing like, this is affecting people. This is, uh, everyone's dealing with it differently. Unfortunately, sometimes you do hear about people getting things like dear John letters and, and it's just kind of, it adds more into that whole is, is, are we here for a reason or are we just kind of suffering needlessly? Uh, are we losing people for nothing? Is, does anyone care that we're losing people? And, and then you're still out there trying to build good relations. So you can't really do anything about it. And so you have to kind of deal with the anger that uh, I remember dealing with that a lot going out to the tower. We would have guys on other cops that would get killed on guard duty. And then you get taken out to guard duty. And it's hard to not feel like uh, it's personal or feel like uh, just kind of lost because you have to just keep those good relations. You can't just get mad at everybody. You don't want the Vietnam repeat where you just take it out on people that it's not not their fault. Uh, so there's definitely social media is what really made it not just feel real, but made it you realize you have to keep your head together because there's too much emotion. Sometimes it gets tied into knowing too much at just each moment. Yeah, definitely a great viewpoint. You know, and social media is a whole other subject with, with what's going on in social media these days. Seems like a lot of people are leaving social media exactly because of that. You know, too much information. And, and you know, it used to be we never heard about things that happened in various places of the world. And now at our fingertips, we've got all this intel coming in. How long were you there in Afghanistan? We did a nine-month deployment out there. And then so you we were back. We were back by like February of 2013 was when we got everybody back in. And then you, you went back to Fort Riley then? Yeah, I went back to Fort Riley, and that's where I finished out my contract. Still did, did a JRTC rotation, almost, almost deployed again, but didn't have quite enough time to go on that one. I think they went to Kuwait or something after that. But uh, I ended up just ETSing out of Fort Riley before heading over to Cape Coral, Florida. So you did pretty much what I did. I went in, into the reserves. The back when I went in was ancient history, but 
did kind of the same thing, went from an infantry division, you know, NBC battalion and into a field artillery. So what did you do at Cape Coral? Same MOS? Cape still, still a 92 Alpha, but I guess the difference is when you get to your unit, everybody is that job. So uh, even though I was still a 92 Alpha, there wasn't really much to do because their motor pool had room for like five people out of a couple hundred <laughs> bodies. So it was kind of like... Uh, I couldn't really do my PLL job like I did while I was active duty. So it was just a lot of showing up and playing the kind of feeling like a private again. We're going to tear down tents this weekend and build them back up and tear down tents again. So it was just kind of uh, killing time is what it felt like. It wasn't really a job. It was just showing up and being present, it seemed like. if you know, Looking back on your military career and the things that you experienced, would you do it all over again? Oh, Absolutely. There's days where I wish I had just stuck with it, but I had, you know, you sometimes you get those bigger plans and you think you're going to do something afterwards and you don't realize how much you're going to miss it when you get out. So uh, I definitely would do every piece of it again, all the way down to deploying all over again. That's nice to hear. So you transitioned out after six years. What was the transition like? Did you get, did you feel like it was adequate instruction? Not really. I felt pretty lost going through the transition. The whole reason why I went from active duty to reserves was because I thought it would help me ease back into a civilian life if I could kind of keep a foot in the door with the military. And because you only do that one week in a month, and sometimes you don't meet up for a couple months, uh, that it didn't really feel like I was in the military anymore. So it really felt like I went from one day being in a uniform, feeling like I had a purpose, feel, felt like I had duties and then just the next day it was like, what am I, what am I going to do? And the, uh, it was called ACAP at the time. I think it's soldier for life program or something now where you go through two or three weeks of like resume building and kind of figuring out what course you want to take, if you want to open a business or go to school. And it definitely wasn't enough time to prepare for being a civilian again. Cause I thought it's like, if I could handle the military, I can handle anything. And I didn't realize how wrong that that perspective was. And it was very, it was almost uncomfortable becoming a civilian again because I felt lost. Uh, I don't want to say that I was really institutionalized, but I definitely got used to being a part of something bigger to where someone was kind of making those decisions for you. Uh, You don't realize how much you're told to be, where to be, what to wear, what time, what place, all this stuff. And you get out and it's, it's almost too much freedom. And that's probably where I struggled the most, was just having way too much freedom and not really figuring out how to ground myself and make a plan from that point. So you went, so when you ETS and got out, did you go back to California? No, just, I mean, I visited, but uh, it was immediately leaving Fort Riley. And I was actually supposed to go to a reserve unit that was out of Beatrice, Nebraska. And before I ever met up with that unit, it got switched over to Cape Coral, Florida. So I never, I had the plan that I was going to go back home when I got out of active duty and I just wasn't really done exploring, wasn't really done checking stuff out. So I figured I'm going to go try something different. I'm going to go try this unit out and Ended up in Florida, did my two years there, and decided Florida wasn't really for me either. And I had bought my house in Kansas while I was on active duty, which is why I ended up back in Kansas. And still always think maybe I'll go back to California, but it just doesn't – something always comes up. Never really make it back. 
So right now it's kind of like, maybe I'll go, maybe not. <laughs> well, you know, you never know what the future holds. We read about it all the time. Don't worry about the future. It'll pan out. Um, tell us about Cruise Corner. So Cruise Corner actually started as it was a capstone project while I was going to school for my master's degree. And we had to do a research paper on communication issues in organizations. And I chose to do it on the Department of Veterans Affairs. And because while I was going through even my bachelor's and my master's, I had a lot of opportunities to kind of talk about PTSD and uh, suicide awareness amongst veterans because I realized a lot of civilians didn't really know what was going on. And so I kind of wanted to make the projects have more meaning to me to make it easier for one. But it was also because I had that close connection to the military. I wanted to do something that I felt would help. So I started using it as a platform, going to school, talking about veteran issues. And part of that capstone project was you had to share it publicly. And so the way I figured I'd do that was I'll start a blog and I'll post it online. But I didn't really like having a blog with just a research paper in it. So I kind of decided to pad the blog a little bit and write a couple articles about transitioning military and stuff that my classmates could read when they checked out the finished product. And uh, some of my friends actually came across the blog and they're like, wow, this is really good. And even some military wives that I knew had seen it and they're like, I really understand what my husband was going through now. Like, you got to keep this going. And so I decided to continue with the blog. And the name actually came from a buddy of mine that I had deployed with. And he committed suicide the month before I got out of active duty, which is why it's called Cruise Corner, because the corner part of it is about reminding us that we're not alone. There's someone in your corner. We don't give up on each other the moment the uniform comes off. That that battle buddy system never ends. It's battle buddies for life. And so I kind of just started creating this spot where I talked about transition and talked about some of the harder topics that nobody seemed to want to talk about. People seemed kind of shy to talk about mental illness or uncomfortable talking about veteran suicide. And I feel like some people got what I was saying, but I had another friend that was a veteran also who said, you need to start telling it in the way of stories. You need to make it more personal because people can relate to that. So I started getting really big into storytelling to kind of create that communication to bridge the gap between not just getting veterans to feel like they could talk to each other and realize they're not the only ones struggling with stuff. We all struggle with different things. Uh, I wanted to bridge that gap with civilians so they could understand what we deal with, what we're coming from, what we need, and where we're struggling the most when we go over into that civilian end. Because I just felt like people didn't really understand what we were sacrificing or what service really meant because we don't live in close proximity to war. We don't, it's not on our doorstep. People can live their lives without having anything to do with it. So I felt like uh, people just didn't understand that people coming back from uh, the, not just the war, just from the military with PTSD, that it's not always from combat. It's not always from deployment, that PTSD is not just the combat disorder yeah. and uh, that you don't have to have a war story to be able to talk and to open up and, I just really wanted to end that stigma that surrounds mental illness because I felt like that was where we were losing a lot of veterans. 
And within the first, I think, two, almost three years of being out of active duty, I had three people from my cavalry unit commit suicide. And I felt like we were just losing people too fast. So I felt like this is where I have to step up and I have to not just put the hashtag 22 a day on stuff. I need to start doing something to help people realize not just veterans, but civilians, that this is an issue, that this is something that can be helped. This is something we can work on together and we well, have to do it together. Well, you know, you know, it is a noble mission. It's a sad mission, but you know, they talk about the number 22. It's probably higher. We, we, we really don't know, but it's all about education. And one thing that I like, you know, part of your program is to, you know, empower veterans by telling them, tell your story, you know, let's get it out. Let's talk about it. And that's the way that you can start your recovery, your healing process, um. yeah there's a lot going on there's a lot more that can be done and it's people like you that take the effort to make it happen you know if you uh if you could impart some wisdom to um the the civilian population you know we talk about stigmas what would you want them to know about veterans and especially combat veterans I mean, there's definitely, as just a veteran, I, going back to the whole PTSD thing, I feel like there's a lot of people that think we all have it. And then there's the people that who hear that we, some of us have it, think it's automatically going back to combat. And the reason why that was a big focus for me was because I think it cuts a lot of people out from feeling like they can open up if they feel like civilians are looking for that war story or they have only that idea of what Hollywood taught them. And so that was a big thing with educating civilians that there's uh, we can experience more, obviously, in the sense that we're going to deploy sometimes and go to combat. But we deal with regular lives, too. There's things that happen. Uh, I've talked about in Cruise Corner about my own PTSD story, that it wasn't from combat because I wanted to teach people that you can be a combat veteran and what you struggle with is not because of that. I was a domestic violence survivor. So I was trying to kind of bring that awareness that there's so many things that people can be affected by. And we need to understand that so people feel like they can talk about it. And I really wanted civilians to, just as a female veteran, to realize that women do serve too. Because there's a lot of that, uh, thank you for your service, but it's directed towards tell your husband thank you for your service. And so then you lose your uh, female population of your veterans that feel like they're spending their time trying to show not just other veterans, but the civilian population that we exist, that women are there, that we deploy, that we are exposed to things. And we spend so much time talking about trying to bring awareness to the fact that we were there that sometimes we don't get that time to just open up where our issues are or to ask for help or support because we're so busy trying to almost make our trauma seem like it was traumatic enough for people to accept it. And and I think that goes for all veterans, combat or non-combat. It's feeling like you can talk about it and it's all going to have the same worth. You don't have to have a more traumatic story to get more support. You don't have to have uh, all these war stories or things happen in order to feel like you can reach out. And so I feel like civilians sometimes are always looking for that, almost like the Black Hawk Down story or something that they understand because that's what they know sometimes is just what they see in the movies. And so uh, I learned from reading the book 
tribe on homecoming and belonging by Sebastian Younger about we need to allow veterans to just tell their story and realize they're we're all experiencing something different, so I'm something the same, something we can relate to, something people can learn from. And so it was really big about just a let a veteran tell their story and don't try to interrupt it. Don't try to like push them to talk about combat or assume it's going to be about combat. Just let people tell their story so people can understand that experience. You know, and it is, it is important to tell the story. We talk about it all the time, you know, just getting it out. You know, if you're, if you're a listener out there and you're a young um, man or woman and you know, what kind of advice, if they're in a dark place, what kind of advice would you give to them? For me, because I definitely went through my my struggles in a really dark places when I got out, and it was feeling like I was kind of broken and that I was the only one. And so I didn't feel like I could reach out because I felt like if I reached out to the veteran community that I would look weak. I had that mentality of still being a soldier. You can't talk about it. And then with civilians, it was like they won't understand. And then when I started telling my story through my blog and just letting it out, I realized there's a lot of people that feel the same way and you aren't alone. You're not the only one having those struggles, whether it's with transitioning, mental illness, you lost somebody, you're dealing with the grief, you feel like you might lose yourself or you have lost yourself and you're trying to do some soul searching again. I feel there's somebody out there that has or is going through that. And if we talked more, we would realize that you're not by yourself. You don't have to fight by yourself. You're not alone. It's, it's okay to not be okay. Just get yourself out of that. And you can't do it alone. As much as some of us want to feel like we have to do it alone, it's it's a wearing journey. And there are so many people out there, not just in the veteran community or service members, but civilians as well, that are so willing to be there to help in any way as long as they know what you need you, like people can't always guess what exactly you need for help and that's where communication is key but a lot of people are out there ready to step up and walk through hell with you so if you're struggling you do not have to go by yourself through that journey definitely some great advice <clears throat> you're not alone and reach out um what does freedom mean to you for me, the freedom part of things was just as a woman, it was being given that opportunity to have the opportunity that I did to serve without, I wasn't forced into it and I wasn't barred from it. And uh, the military gave me a lot of things I'm very thankful for. And I felt like just having the freedom to make that choice to go off and serve my country and to have the life I do now, to have the experiences I did, that was really what it's been to me and to continue using the benefits of it, just free to kind of do as I want and uh, be who I want and I'm still figuring it out. But I know there's like the sky's the limit is once I figure it out, it's just taking aim and going for it. That's awesome. Let me ask you, Lonnie, how can people get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing with Cruise Corner? They can either reach me through the uh, Cruise Corner blog, which is just that, cruisecorner.blog. I'm always on Instagram. Can you spell it? Can you spell that? K-R-U-S-E-C-U-R-N-E-R. You can reach me through my email, which again is the Cruise Corner, then the number seven at gmail.com. 
And I'm also Instagram through Cruise Corner. Everything's pretty much linked in Facebook. You can reach me either through my personal Facebook, which is Lonnie Hankins. Cruise Corner does have a Facebook page on that. So everything's kind of linked. So if you hit me up on one, it's usually linked to something else. So it's pretty easy to get in touch with me through social media. Awesome. You know, thank you for that information. Uh, All I can say is I'm proud of you. You know, it's uh, it's tough to come back from some of these experiences we have in in our lives. And, uh, you know, you're tough and you, you know, you've got a vision. And all I can say is it's people like you that make me proud to be a human, but also an American. And, you know, we can't do it alone. And I know that uh, somewhere out there, Lonnie Hankins has my back. And uh, just appreciate you, you know, taking the time to be with us on Straight Outta Combat Radio. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here and talk about it. So thanks. Thanks, Lonnie. We'll be seeing you. Keep up the good work, too. Thank you. I will. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Yeah.